0: Good morning. It's been a good morning. Do you know the call of God on your life? Do you know what you were put on this earth for? This morning, I'm hoping that in 30-ish minutes time, you will be able to... Maybe not answer that question, but at least have the ability to start to work that out. This morning, I want to equip us or to help us to learn how to discover the answer to those questions. What is the call of God on my life? What am I put on this earth for? Now, I'm meaning this in quite a specific way. I Sometimes I think Christians, God, I almost went again there, um, can be obsessed with, I need God's call on my life, like you, the specific call for you, and, and just get obsessed with that. And I think that's a dangerous thing. But I think actually it's quite important. It is quite important to know, what's God calling me to? So this morning, I hope that we're going to uh, work out what we were made for. i give you the tools to do that. We're continuing in our Ezra and Nehemiah series. Uh, and we are actually uh, starting Nehemiah today. So we're kind of uh, halfway through, maybe a bit more than halfway through. Is it going again? I'm twisting the, the wrong one. There you go. See, it's all about perspective. There's a message there, isn't there? Um, we're going to continue in this series and we're going to start covering Nehemiah. But if you cast your mind back There you go. You may remember seeing one of these types of images. We had several of these being shown at the beginning. And we talked about how within these two books, which used to be one book, um, there were these three cycles that happened where Zerubbabel came to Jerusalem, rebuilt the altar, laid the foundation of the temple. Then uh, Ezra came in. Sort of helped again with the temple, tried to encourage the people there. And then we got to Nehemiah and he sort of helps to rebuild the walls and part of the city of Jerusalem. And we sort of said that there's these kind of sort of cycles where some people return, some positive stuff happens and everyone thinks, this is it, this is the moment we've been waiting for. Everything's going to be back to you know the glory days and then it doesn't quite work out. And then the next... You know, that's ball. Then Ezra comes in. This is it. This is what we have been waiting for. And it doesn't quite work out. And then, now Nehemiah, 20, about 22 years after Ezra's returned. Some stuff's gone well. Some other stuff's not gone well. Last time we talked about, you know, the whole sort of weird, like we're going to sort of separate these people, separate these families. We need to separate ourselves from the people of the land. Sort of, some stuff went well. Some stuff didn't go quite well. It's about 22 years later and then Nehemiah meets some people who are coming back from Jerusalem. He's still exiled. and He meets some people coming back from Jerusalem. So let's let's read, it's gonna come up on the screen. Are you able to, do you need me to click it through? Are you able to click it through? Okay, so it should be up on the screen for you. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Nehemiah one. It's page 567 in my Bible, but that might not be very helpful for you. I'm going to read the first chapter and the first 11 verses of chapter 2. So it's quite a lot, but we're going to read it together. It's not actually a huge amount. It's about 22 verses. Here we go. The words of Nehemiah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel we which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid." I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favour in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me and the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when i had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the king's, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the, uh, the good hand of God. The good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. It's an interesting story, interesting passage. I think it's just a few things I want us to to know about Nehemiah before we carry on. We're just to to hold in our mind, Nehemiah was an active person. He was, he had a good job and he served well. He was the cupbearer to the king. That's quite, you know, it's quite a prestigious position in many ways. Sometimes it's it's almost like a, it can be a kind of prime ministerial position. Like I said, it carries some authority. Sometimes it's just, a, you know, taste this so that I don't die when I drink my wine. He was an active person. He was skilled in his work. Proverbs said, if you see a man skilled in his work, he'll serve before kings. He He'd managed to... You know, he was an exile, he was a foreigner, he was someone who'd been captured and he'd risen to like the top position that he could possibly get to. So he wasn't like a passive guy just going, oh, I wonder when we're going to get back to Israel. He was an active, involved person. He was dedicated. He knew the word of God. In prayer, we see he refers to the commandments of Moses, The Lord, we've sinned against what you've told Moses. He's re- he's remembering, he's saying, this is who you are, God. He knew who God was. You're the awesome, great God. He was a mature person as well. It doesn't, I, I can't recall if it mentions his age, but he takes responsibility. Says, Even I and my father's house have sinned. And then later on, he takes responsibility. I'm going to act on this. So when we're looking at Nehemiah to learn, we're looking at the the, the book, these these books of the Bible to be shaped and to to learn. Because the word of God should shape us when we read it. It's good for you to read the word of God, even if you don't fully understand it, read it and it will shape you. But we want to see from these, these verses, these 22 verses, how we can discern and do the will of God and how we can find our calling. So we're going to look at these in sort of roughly three sections, three-ish sections. So what can we learn? We can learn from the question, the reaction, and the opportunity. We see in the first three verses of chapter one, this, the questions that he asks. It's the words of Nehemiah. He says this. uh, One of my brothers came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them, Concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah was interested in God's people and God's city. He had a good position in life. He had you know, the trappings of the world around him. He was, you know, would have had quite a comfortable lifestyle. But he was more interested in what was going on in, with God's people and in God's city. The walls get mentioned here that they're broken down. Why is that important? Why are the walls important? The, the restoration of the walls, which will happen later on, is important, but it's a means to an end. It's a a kind of statement almost that the walls provided security and safety for the people within the city. The the walls being finished would enable the the work inside the city to carry on and the restoration of the actual city itself to be completed. In, In some ways, the walls provide a framework for the rest of the work to be done. No walls, no gates means the people of God were vulnerable. They weren't safe. Nehemiah was interested in the welfare of the people of God and the city of God. So what does that mean for us? The first question, I think, in discerning or trying to work out what's God's call on my life, I think we need to establish a baseline first. Do I love what God loves? Am I interested in what God is interested in? Are you interested in the people of God, in the city of God? The people of God, the city of God, it's the church. Jesus loved the church. He laid down his life for the church. We should love the church. The church, capital C, the global historical church. We should love it. It's a nightmare sometimes, but we should love it. It's confusing sometimes, but we should love it. So we should love the church, but that's not enough. We should love a church. And we should care about those who don't Jesus. If we're looking for the call of God on our lives, if we're looking to discern that, then this is the baseline. This is this is if you haven't got this, you're not going to be able to get beyond this point. You're not going to be able to get to what does God want specifically for me if you haven't even got these general, I love the church. I love a church and I love the people who don't know Jesus. I want to see them reached. That's a baseline. I chatting with Brian a little while ago and he said something which I had never heard before. And I thought it was profound. It's easier to guide a moving object. Is that right? Yeah. It's easier to guide a moving object. Now, Alex is here. Alex knows a bit about physics. I can't remember this. It's like the, the laws of thermodynamics, and you know, the conservation of angular momentum. Is that right? Is that one of them? Conservation of momentum. You know, if something's moving, you know, it's, it maintains that momentum. It's easier to guide a moving object. If something's stationary, you know, a car, and you're trying to steer, it's hard, isn't it? If you know if you drive, if you give it a little push, suddenly it's easier to turn the wheels. Yeah, does that make sense? It's easier to guide a moving object. If we are active and serving where we are, then God is able, he's more easily able to manoeuvre us to where he wants to be. He's more able to direct us into the specific roles and places he wants us to be. You might say, I, I don't know what my gift is. I don't know what my gifting is. What? I'm not really sure where I should be serving. Just pick somewhere. Honestly, this is like a serious comment. You know, it's funny in some ways. Pick something, start doing it. You'll very quickly find out whether you're gifted to do it or not. And if you're not, well, you can just move into something else. Obviously, don't leave the people in the lurch that you're serving alongside, but start doing something. And you know, if you're really bad at it, the people around you will help to guide you out It's easier to guide, isn't it? A moving object. I think I'm gonna talk about this later, but like, I hope you won't mind me saying this, Andy. Probably last year, this time last year, I don't know if I'd ever heard the word Afghan come out of Andy's mouth. Honestly, like maybe once or twice. In the last 12 months, I don't know if he said anything else, has he? You know, like, but he's a moving object. Okay, well let's step into this thing and see what we can do. And suddenly, God's put on his heart a love for a people. A love for a people, a nation. It's easier to direct a moving object. So love a church. We should primarily be concerned with the health and well-being of a singular local church that we belong to. Over a concern for the church. Now, we should be interested in the church and the reputation of the church, but the reality is the majority of us in this room are not going to have any influence on that. But you can have a massive influence on the reputation and the effectiveness of a local church that you are in and belong to. In a generation... And a period of history where probably one of the biggest markers of this time is lack of commitment. People will look back on this period of history and go, they didn't really stick it much, did they? Christians should demonstrate something different. Commitment to one another. Commitment to a cause and a people. Too often, I think we can become distracted with the big picture stuff. I often think this, you know, when, it, like many of us, I'm sure, I, you know, when we're talking to friends or family, we can start to talk about politics and things that aren't quite right and all of this, how we would like things to be different. How many of us get involved? You know? I've got someone in mind, that I think I'd love them to run MP and, and just say, you know, I'm, I'm the Watford MP. I don't care about the rest of the country. I care about Watford. I do care about the rest of the country, but my primary concern is for this. Not got no allegiances, just Watford. You know, that, point being, how many of us actually go, well, I, could, I could go and get involved in that and do something about it. Or even I could just write to my MP. Megan wrote to our MP just recently, I can't remember what it was about. But we can often talk about the big picture and be distracted by it and it causes inaction. This is so overwhelming. There's nothing I can do. I might as well just give up. We can be, we need to be involved and active. And that's why being part of a local church family is so important. And I know in many regards, I'm literally preaching to the choir because you are here. So you are committed to a local church. But I want to encourage you in that. Say this. It's good, what you're doing is it's the right thing to do. We need to love a church. We need to love those outside the church. It can be difficult to care for everyone. Again, you can sort of feel overwhelmed. But as you begin to care for some people, God might put on your heart specific groups of people. It might be a particular nation, it might be a particular social demographic. But as we're acting and serving, you know, it might be that you've been involved with some of the stuff that we've done with the Afghans and you've gone along to some meals and you think, oh, good grief, Afghan food doesn't sit right with me. That's probably not who I'm called to be with. I'm not called to go there because I can't eat the food. You know, but there might be somewhere else. Actually, this is, this nation, it's just on my heart all the time. Whenever I'm praying, I'm praying, Lord, I want to see you, you know, revival, break out. Instantly, my mind goes to this place. But it's only as we're active and doing stuff and serving that that happens. It doesn't happen if you're, you know, just sat in your chair and going, Lord, you know, I'm waiting for you to tell me where I should go and when I should start doing stuff. I'm saving all my energy. I'm not going to serve where I am. I'm going to keep all my energy in reserve, so that when you call me to somewhere, I've got lots of it left. That's not how it works. I was listening to a guy preaching recently, and he said, "How many people have been I'm not sure I said this before how many people have been on like a beach holiday where you know you sit and you read and you don't do anything really, and like you know you you had a relaxing time. Who's been on that kind of a holiday? yeah?" Who was tired after that holiday? There are some people. The rest that we need, the energy that we need, is not from just chilling out. It's the Holy Spirit coursing through us, flowing out of us, filling us up. Now, holidays and rest and Sabbath, that's massive and it's important and it's good. You should have that. but it's from, it's from the Holy Spirit that we get our energy and our you know, ability to keep going and going and going. The walls of the city were important. They protected the people and, and the whole story of Nehemiah is him rebuilding these walls in record time, uh, but we'll look a bit more at that over the, the next few weeks. But the point of that was to provide a safe space for the people of God in which they could live and worship and serve God. That's what the walls represent. But the walls had gates in them, gates for people to go out, people to come in, out of the city on mission, into the city to come in and join in the worship. The church needs to have gates as well as walls. We as a church have now, in some ways, we we say membership is like a wall. It's a way of sort of creating a, a space within. Actually, you can be, you know, you, in and around the church. You can come in through the through the walls. You can be in in with us, worshiping God, being part of it. So there's gates there as well, but the walls. It's kind of like these are the markers. This is within this sort of boundary. It's a safe space. It's a safe space. We can learn from Nehemiah's questions that shows where his they show where his interest is. What's he interested in? What are we interested in? And we see from his reaction the authenticity of his interest. He's not just, oh, you know, how's it going in Jerusalem? Oh, it's a shame. You know, he's not indifferent to it. He has a reaction. He reacts. His is verse four. He says, as soon as I heard these words, that the walls were broken down, the gates had been burned, that the people were in shame, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. His response to the devastating news was to pray. We saw something similar with Ezra last time. Nehemiah didn't say he ripped his clothes. He's not quite as dramatic as Ezra. But he wept and mourned for days and he continued fasting and praying. A deep love and concern for God's glory and God's people and God's city provokes an emotional response. It was a strong emotional response, but it didn't result in sort of despondency and inaction. Didn't go. Oh, that's awful! It's, nothing's going right. This is terrible. Most of us are still exiled. Oh, just go about my daily life. He didn't stand on the sidelines and criticise. He didn't go. What? The walls are still down. Ezra went there twenty-two years ago. What's he been doing? He didn't criticise. It wasn't. He didn't. Sort of be reduced to inaction. He fell to his knees and prayed, and then others gathered around him, who did the same. You know, he prayed for five months before he saw any kind of answer. In a casual reading of that, partly because you know the months are called different things, you might not pick up on that. In what in what I read this this morning, those first sort of chapter and a half. Yeah, that's it. But it says this in the month of Chislev in the twentieth year, and then in the month of Nissan in the twentieth year. Now, because that's in, a, you know, those aren't the normal month names for us. We can skip. You can skip over that in your brain, and it seems like oh, someone came to him. He prayed, and then he went before the king, and got what he wanted. We think, okay, that's I've seen this thing, I'm gonna pray. God, where's my answer? Five months it was. It's like saying, In January I got this really bad news. And then towards the end of May, June time, I finally got an opportunity. God answered my prayer. We can learn from his prayer. We can learn from the fact that there was a delay in the answer. God, the the impression that's given from this is that he prayed this prayer, something like this prayer almost every day. He finishes his prayer with this: "Give success to and in mercy in the sight of this man." I read that and I think he's saying to God every day, "God, have mercy on me." Let this man have mercy on me. Give me success today. And he's he's hoping today is going to be the day when I get to act. We can learn from his prayer. We can learn that he he was a man who took responsibility for sin. He confessed sin. He took on sort of took ownership, if you want, in some ways of the the people of God's sin. pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Saying, Lord, I recognize this is, you know, we, we've sinned against you. He, he wasn't necessarily the, him who had done the stuff. He said, I'm taking, I'm putting myself in with these guys. I'm, I, I'm with them. I'm one of them. We've sinned against you. Have mercy on us. He prays the promises of God back to him. He says, this is what you said, God, that we would be, even if we were scattered to the outermost reaches of the furthest place away, that if we turn to you, you would gather us together again. He reminds God of what God has said. He's a man of conviction. He prays again and again, and then he plays his part in the solution. When a problem presents itself to us, what is our first port of call? How quickly do we give up on something that we think God's called us to because things are difficult or we don't see a quick answer to our prayers? You know, it doesn't say this, but maybe Nehemiah, as soon as he heard that news, thought, God, you're calling me to go and rebuild these walls. Okay, day one. Praise the prayer sort of serving the king's mind, waiting for the, you know, is he going to ask me? Oh, no, okay. Day two, day three, day four, day five, month one, month two, month three, month four, month five. Finally, get an opportunity. How quickly do we give up on something that we think God's called us to because we don't see an instant response, an instant response? Opportunity because things become a little bit actually. This is going to cost me. I've got to put some skin in the game. You know, this is going to be painful to follow through on this. I've had several conversations where people say to me. I think God, I think God's, you know, I believe God's calling me to this. Now, let me just, you know, I'm putting this out there so it's not a shock to you if you have this conversation like with myself or with Andy or, you know, anyone else. If you, just because someone says, you know, I believe God said this to me, that is not like a free pass. You will still be questioned about those things, okay? I'm just putting that out there so that everyone knows because I've been in lots of situations where people say, you know, God said this to me, and I'm gonna do this thing. It's like, whoa, that is like not sensible or wise. And I think it might be like counter to what the Bible says. So I'm pretty sure God wouldn't say that to you. But people think, Christians sometimes think, that saying God said to me means no one's gonna ask me any questions. That's like my get into jail free card or whatever you wanna call it. I have genuinely had conversations with people who said, I feel like God's calling me to do this. And I said to them, you know, when was the last time you read your Bible? Like in the last week, have you read your Bible? In the last week, have you prayed? In the last week, have you been filled with the Holy Spirit, asked to be filled again? And the answer to all three questions was no. So my response was, how can you possibly know what God is trying to tell you? Like genuinely, like what kind of relationship do you have with God? That you think he's trying to tell you something but you're not reading your Bible. You're not praying, and you're not being filled with the Holy Spirit. These are like that's, that's like the the baseline for if you want to hear from God. You can you know, uh, let's be realistic about this. Life is messy and inconsistent. Okay, that's just true. If you <laughs> if you've been around children or you have children, you know life is messy and inconsistent. If you remember back to when you were a child, you know that is are we are we trying to build good patterns and good habits in our life spending time in the word praying asking to receive more of the holy spirit we had you know lots of organizations or groups had 2020 vision Ours, our our 2020 vision was we had 320s we said we want to encourage people to uh, spend 20 minutes a day with god reading the Bible and praying 20 minutes a day. Give 20 pounds more than you are currently giving a month to the church and give hope to 20 people. Extend hope to 20 people by praying for them or serving them or sharing the gospel with them. Now, some people said to me, 20 minutes a day, that's like nothing. For some people, whoa, 20 minutes a day. What am I going to do with all that time? I, we're, I'm, you know, I'm talking to I'm reviving those a little bit. Twenty minutes a day. Can you do it? Can you do it? Twenty minutes a day. A couple of chapters of the Bible and a quick prayer. Maybe one verse and you think about it for ten minutes. Genuinely, think about it for ten minutes. Nehemiah's authentic care and concern and his persistence in prayer resulted in an opportunity. In An opportunity. Are we ready to take our opportunities? He says, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Nehemiah had prayed and prayed for months and months, and then an opportunity presented itself, and he was ready. We'll see in a minute. He was ready. But he was also afraid. Now, there's lots of you know reasons. People commentating on this say he could have been afraid. It could have been that like you know, the cupbearer's coming up and he's looking a bit sad as he's coming towards the king. The king's thinking, hang on a minute. Why are you sad? Are you worried, you know, like, are you nervous because there's something in that cup that you've just slipped in there? You know, is this, this was the sort of thing that went on, you know, it's like there's coups and, you know, this person's getting assassinated, that kind of thing. So the cupbearer's looking sad. He's looking a bit sheepish as he comes to the king. He was afraid. He was also afraid because, oh, this is my chance to ask what I've been waiting to ask. Is he going to, is the king going to be happy with me? Or is he going to go, how dare you? How dare you talk about that rebellious city? Take him away. He was ready. He was afraid. Don't know if you've ever been in like the final of a competition or you've had to perform a solo piece of music and you knew, you know, I know it all. I know every note, I know every beat. Oh, I'm nervous. I'm ready, but I'm afraid. It's kind of like that feeling. But, so he was ready, Nehemiah was ready, but he was also afraid because he wouldn't have just, you know, hit a few bum notes or lost a final of something. He might have died. His life could have been on the line. How often do we back away from opportunities that God presents us with because we are afraid? A guy called uh, Wallace P. Ben, who's written a sort of a Bible commentary, he says this on Nehemiah. He says, often we have longed Often we have all longed for opportunities to speak up for the Lord. But if we're honest, most of us have had far more opportunities than we've had the courage to accept. Feeling fear is normal, giving in to fear is a problem. Nehemiah was afraid. And then the very next verse says, I prayed to God, then I said to the king. Now, it's not written there, but I'm sort of, you know, hedging my bets that he didn't fall on his knees and go start praying the long prayer that he prayed out beforehand. He's probably standing there, Lord, help me. And I said to the king, little. Arrow prayer, as it's called sometimes, you know, quickly send one up. He prayed, he did a quick prayer, and then he showed that he was ready. We read what he's, he said to the king, the way he spoke to the king. In his prayer, he says, at the, like the long prayer that he does, he says to God, um, grant me mercy in the sight of this man. If he said this man to the king, he probably would have been in big trouble. But in his long prayer, he's doing that. He says a quick prayer, and then he talks. Says this to the king. He uses winsome language. He uses language that will appeal to the king. the The graves of my father, Let me, the city where the graves of my fathers are, is destroyed. Is in disrepair. He knows that the nation and the faith that the king follows, well, your ancestors are really important. So he uses some winsome language, you know. What's important to you, the, you know, the graves of my father is in disrepair. He had specific requests ready. If it pleases the king, could I maybe have these letters? You know, could I, could I have, you know, a letter to the keeper of the forest so that I can cut some trees down and have timber? This is not an off-the-cuff request. Nehemiah was prepared. He was ready when the opportunity happened. And the king asked him, When are you going to return? So he, you know, he had a plan for a time scale as well. I think it will probably take me about this long. Nehemiah was ready, even though he was afraid. We see in the last couple of verses which We didn't really have time to talk about, but it's a truth that is is still true for us today. As Nehemiah he goes and he starts doing this stuff, he comes up against some opposition. See a bit more about that in a couple of weeks. But as soon as you show interest for the things of God, as soon as you start to serve, as soon as you want to be a, a moving object, you will encounter opposition. That's the reality of it. Don't be shocked by it. And don't be cowed by it. Don't be sort of beaten back. I think last month, uh, Megan and I were sort of, we're talking and praying about it and we decided to sort of, please hear this is not like sort of some sort of humble brag at all. Like we decided, okay, we're going to up our giving a little bit to the church. Okay. That month, you know, Megan would say, (laughs) she shared it in a group, said that month it felt like Good grief, where has all the money gone? We hadn't increased the giving that month. We said next month, we'll start doing it. Suddenly, where is all the money gone? Does this need to pay for? This we need to, oh my goodness, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. No, that's not what we thought. Instantly, like, oh, Megan's reaction to that, just, you know, good wife, is we must be doing the right thing because suddenly there's this pressure. You're trying to be interested in the things of God, trying to be more committed to the things of God. See how, let's test your resolve. Of course, of course we're going to be committed to the things of God. And actually, you know, this month, two, you know, fortuitous blessings come our way because we're faithful to it. God, we're in, we're in. Don't be beaten back by opposition. So what does all this mean for us? Jesus saw a problem. He took responsibility for it. He identified with us. He saw our sin and said, I'm going to stand with them. Jesus was afraid. Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, there's another way. Father, if there's another way, he's afraid but he set his face, says like flint, or like stone, and didn't shrink back. This is the plan I'm gonna follow through. Imagine we lived our lives like this, lived with our desires and passions aligned to God's. Imagine if our first response was to seek God in prayer. Imagine if we were enabled by the power of the spirit To be part of the solutions to problems that present themselves. Problems that God wants to solve. Imagine that you were brave in the face of fear. Imagine you made the most of every opportunity God gave you. Just for a second, just imagine that. Imagine every opportunity that you, you know, instantly, I'm sure we can all think of things where we think, oh, I missed that chance. Imagine you've been brave enough to take that chance that opportunity. Now imagine if we all did that as a church family, as a church we said, we're all gonna be brave. We're all gonna make the most of every opportunity. We're all gonna prioritize what God is prioritizing. Imagine the church in this nation did that, the difference that our society would face would see imagine the church across the world did that if we want to know what God's call is on our lives we must be active and not passive looking to serve where we can wherever we can whenever we can must be interested in God's glory not ours caring about the things that God cares about must be directed by the word of God Knowing the word of God, knowing your Bible is essential in order to ensure that you're aligned correctly. To discern the will of God, the call of God on your life as a baseline. You must care more about what God wants than what you want. And as a a high line, you must take responsibility. Start doing something. Say, I'll do that. There's a problem there. I'll sort it out. By doing that, we can begin to discern the call of God on our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your presence with us this morning. I thank you that we have been able to encounter you, encounter the living God, that we've been able to meet together to celebrate your grace and your goodness and your love for us and that we've been able to meet with you. Lord, I thank you that you are at work in this world and you are at work in and through us as individuals and as a church family. And I pray for those of us who are wondering, what are you calling me to, God? What is my life going to be about? That you would stir in our hearts a love for what you love. A concern for your glory, a concern for your people and your city, a concern for the church, a love for the local church. Well, I pray that you would instill in us a bravery and a courage that when we face fear and opposition, we are able to say a prayer and say to the king, that we're able to take responsibility and act how you want us to, that we would be a people who are prepared, that we're ready, that we're not just those who have good thoughts and good intentions, but actually we act on them and prepare ourselves, training ourselves for the moment that you provide us with that opportunity. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.